LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Beyond politics, poverty and war. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat and my guest today is sociologist Harvey Moloch author of Against Security, How We Go Wrong at Airports, Subways, and Other Sites of Ambiguous Danger. Remember when an unattended package was just that? An unattended package? Remember when the airport was a place that evoked magical possibilities, not the anxiety of a full body scan? In the post-9-11 world, we have become focused on heightened security measures, but do you feel safer? And are you safer? Against Security explains how our anxieties about public safety have translated into command and control procedures that annoy, intimidate and are often counterproductive. Taking readers through varied, ambiguously dangerous sites, Maloch argues that we can use our existing social relationships to make life safer and more humane. Throughout, he offers thoughtful ways of maintaining security that are not only strategic but improve the quality of life for everyone. Against Security argues that with changed policies and attitudes, redesigned equipment, and an increased reliance on our human capacity to help one another, we can be safer and maintain the pleasure and dignity of our daily lives. Hello and welcome, Harvey Maloch, and thank you very much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Great to be with you. Now, Harvey, today we're going to discuss your book, Against Security, Uh, how we go wrong at airports, subways, and other sites of ambiguous danger. Um, Perhaps you could just get us started by giving us just an overview um, of the book itself. Well, the book examines the security issue from the standpoint of uh, mostly the everyday. So the kinds of uh, barriers we run into, the turnstiles, the messages we receive to be careful, to be aware uh, to keep our eye on things, um, the um, sort of uh, stops we encounter. Uh, and the, the larger issue is how it is that anxiety, uh, which is uh, always in the air because of the fact that we're all going to die for one thing, but there are um, events that uh, are terror-like, 9-11 being the most extreme for Americans, uh, that um, intrude on our consciousness. And the question is, What do we do about it? And uh, there's a kind of um, uh, implementation which can go in all kinds of ways, and it does in different countries at different times, and those ways don't make sense. And sometimes the precautions taken against danger, um, against uh, terror, for example, or catastrophe, um, make us less safe rather than more safe. And this book is a kind of uh, brass tacks, down to earth, uh, how it happens and how it goes wrong and what we could do to make it uh, better and make it less go wrong. 
Now, of course, in the, the modern era, you know, throughout the 20th century, there was always security uh, checkpoints and in public places there would be security guards, various measures taken to prevent uh, mishaps and accidents. Uh, most of them quite sensible, really, are coming from a place that was quite logical. Um, but then something changed at some point, and for me personally, and I think for a lot of other people, you mentioned 9-11, I don't remember really thinking about security prior to 9-11. Now, I grew up in Northern Ireland, which was a really quite violent place throughout the 70s and most of the 80s. Um, the security there was very obvious and for very obvious reasons, but the security that I experienced growing up actually feel, feels, thinking back, less obtrusive than what we have now, which sounds bizarre. And so for me, 9-11, from that point on, something really changed. Uh, that's very instructive to me because I uh, know, of course, about the Irish situation, um, the rebellion, the deaths, the um, opposition, the the, uh, the um, English um, uh, response. Uh, but um, the idea that you would find today's uh, security apparatus more intrusive is um, interesting to me um, and, uh, and and quite dramatic, actually. Uh, given that uh, it, it again shows that the different ways that different cultures at different times respond to threat. Now, 9-11, of course, was a huge event, uh, if not necessarily in in numbers of uh, lives lost, which, of course, 3,000 or something is, is tragic. But in the global scale of, of loss of life, um, it wasn't huge, but it was huge in our, the popular consciousness and in the media of course, and because it happened to the U.S. and the, and the type of people that it happened to, all those sorts of reasons. So, um, what what is it about 9/11 really that that was it just the things I've uh, that I've just mentioned that made it sort of unique of its kind and the response to it so um, well, for want of a better word, draconian. Um, so the um, I think that 9/11 did have some theatrical aspects. Uh, and so much of the security apparatus is about theater, so it's uh, plausible to start with the uh, the, the setting of the theater. 9/11 uh, um, was um, ma made for TV movie. Uh, first of all, the, the nightmare of an airplane crash. People are we've long known this. People are much more afraid of airplanes uh, than they are of bathtubs, and bathtubs are much more dangerous than than airplanes. So nightmares happen um, with airplanes um, and then skyscrapers um, and a conflagration at the top of a skyscraper is, again, everybody's nightmare. Now, you add in the fact uh, that this is the United States of America, world's most powerful yada yada country on Earth um, and uh, don't tread on me and nobody mucks with us. And the fact that the U.S. has been ever since the Civil War uh, secure. Um, against any kind of military um, uh, assault um, makes this a, um, a very dramatic event as well. And yes, the whole world responds to the, the U.S. nightmares, in part because the U.S. puts its nightmares out on mass media and creates the world's, uh, or at least a genre of the world's nightmares in the first place. Um, and the U.S. also... Um, in very concrete ways, influences the security uh, apparatuses that are in place in the world. Uh, because, um, for example, with airplanes, the U.S. Federal Aviation, between the U.S. FAA 
and the fact that so many aircraft are made in the U United States um, means that the um, the the the, uh, the infrastructure of the whole world when it comes to air travel um, gets dominated by the U.S. They are U.S. rules, U.S. standards, and for for a plane to be able to land in the U.S., um, it must correspond to uh, those protocols, those standards, and so therefore all the airlines of the world and the other uh, plane uh, manufacturers in the world, of which there are very few, um, conform to. Uh, the U.S. standard. A lot of this overall, not just um, airport security, but um, you've various chapters in your book break down different uh, security arenas. And a lot of it comes from the need to do something or to be seen to be doing something in the face of um, of particular threats. And of course, after 9-11, it was obvious that something had to be done. I remember on the day it happened in the afternoon, talking to some people and saying what the U.S. needs to do now is nothing. You just need to wait and see, just wait. You know, if someone runs up to you in the street and punches you in the face, you know, you might want to retaliate immediately. But if it happened to me, I'd say, hang on a minute. Why did that person punch me in the face? And you, you point out not only this a lot of security stemming from this need to do something, but it's also behind that is the fact that a lot of security apparatus and governments and what have you, they don't actually know what to do. Uh, right. They don't know what to do. And again, that's not uh, very unique um, either. A whole lot of things happen to us in the world and we don't know uh, how it occurred um, and we don't know what to do. And there's a very strong human inclination to indeed do something. Um, and how that um, inclination to do something gets uh, translated, transmuted into specific actions, I think, depends on the historic setting and the kind of country that you're dealing with and who's in power. So at the moment of 9-11, I thought, um, and I was living in New York at the time and watched the towers fall, and I was utterly bewildered, especially initially because we had no idea of how this was all um, unfolding my inclination was to think, well, now it shows that uh, the U.S. really is interdependent with the rest of the world. When we learned that, uh, in this case, uh, Saudis were involved with Afghanistan as a base and all that, and that surely now um, American policy would be uh, oriented um, in, a, in a global way, um, in a peaceful way, um, and somehow trying to, to deliver uh, dignity and incorporation and inclusion to all these peoples of the world. And I was just completely, uh, there's the phrase, dead wrong. Um, and uh, the U.S. took uh, the absolute opposite perspective. And I think that's the, the sort of example of a switch point in history, that George Bush was president of the United States, uh, another uh, Republican a right-wing Republican, uh, Giuliani, was the mayor of New York. Another Republican was governor of New York, uh, Pataki. And between them, but especially George Bush, they translated this event into an opportunity um, and indeed a compulsion for revenge. And revenge is always on the checklist of one of the possible responses. Uh, and uh, patience is another. Uh, peace is still another. Um, and they uh, they ticked off the revenge button. And as a result um, of that, uh, compared to the 3000 people who died um, on 9-11, we had um, uh, thousands more than that of American troops that have died um, since that revenge button was pressed. 
um, and of course, uh, a well over 100,000 people um, of, of, of civilians, far and away innocent civilians um, in the Middle East uh, lost their lives. Well, with regard in particular to um, threat of terrorism, and we understand that not all terrorists call themselves terrorists. You know, there's there's um, there are gray areas and different uh, definitions there. That in the experience of of Ireland, you can't just keep crushing threats because then it's just you know a war of attrition, which everyone ends up losing, and you eventually have to compromise. That is the only way to actually resolve these situations. You know, it's a bit like. I can't remember what comedy show it was on. Someone was joking about they were perceiving, you know, I think it was someone in power, like a king perceiving threats everywhere. And one of his advisors said, you need to kill everyone else in the entire world and then you'll be safe. Uh, yeah, that's that's um, the extreme solution um, is to just uh, be alone. Um, and uh, then, of course, you'll die of loneliness, which is an actual medical uh, condition that's uh, that's very, very common. Uh uh, yeah, I, I feel that if you don't know what to do, um, and September 11th is one of those um, circumstances in which, uh, yeah, I have my orientation of the world, but I really can prove that it's true um, and that if we um, um, were patient and engaged people, that we would win their hearts and minds, um, that we could uh, do actual things that would win their hearts and minds. I. I don't know that that's true, but um, I think it's better to operate on that assumption. If you don't know what you're doing, you might as well be decent. And that's a kind of theme of my book. I call it the default default to decency. Mm-hmm. If, you, um, if the situation is utterly ambiguous, and, and in many of these circumstances, they are circumstances of ambiguity, then do some affirmative action uh, for uh, for decency. Um, and so, uh, yeah, um, uh, I think rock and roll is decent. And I think we should, exp- uh, the, the British and the Americans own global rock and roll. And um, I think it's a wonderful thing. And I think it's a wonderful enticement for the world. Uh, never mind also things like medical care and educational um, um, attainment. And uh, there's all sorts of positive things to be doing. And um, if you, like I said, I can't prove those will work magic. But if you don't know what you're doing, you might as well do something that's decent. And maybe it will work. Um, in terms of psychology, uh, to what extent do you think this is uh, connected to a certain human craving for certainty? I mean, even though life and, and nature shows us that chaos reigns and that there's nothing but uncertainty. We do kind of want the jury to be in, don't we? We want things to be settled, to know what we've got, even if it's limited, so everything's predictable. Yeah, no, I think that there is a very deep uh, human um, orientation of the world that um, creates a a thirst for clarity um, and for certainty and uh, for the ability to act along the lines of that certainty. And uh, without um, focusing on a kind of existential crisis, um, it, it's indeed uh, something that haunts all our lives, that the whole thing actually is chaos and craziness, um, and that there is no certainty to anything, not even the reality outside um, of our own bodies is necessarily certain at all. There's all sorts of um, uh, 
terrible uh, threats of absurdity uh, that surround us. And so uh, we really do uh, yearn for um, some kinds of, of, of solidity through which we can make our lives. And so we're really sitting ducks for something like an attack on 9-11 or uh, the claim that there are witches who are uh, brewing all sorts of uh, horrible things that are going to come our way. Uh, and explaining, which people, lots of people have done on the world, when calamities do occur, for example, uh, diseases, that they're due to some, um, uh, some horrible human beings who are stirring up the pot, uh, stirring up the brew of evil. And, and people's, not just uh, contemporary Americans, but uh, we're, we're peoples of the, in the history of the world are uh, susceptible to that kind of way of getting out of their ambiguity and especially ambiguous danger, which again is a term I use a lot in the book. Uh, it's all about the ambiguous danger uh, and the um, effort to deal with it. And at a more mundane level, um, a lot of the security apparatus is introduced against uh, or in this culture we have, which is very risk averse. Uh, this is the culture where uh, uh, anonymous woman sues McDonald's because she buys a cup of coffee, gets into her car, the driving seat, has the coffee, coffee in her lap. It falls over. She gets burned. So she sues McDonald's or where you routinely now see bags of nuts with caution may contain nuts on them. Um, right. Well, that's also the litigation systems, at least in the U.S., um, work uh, their wonders in very uh, specific ways that uh, that cre create these uh, circumstances. Um, in, in the book, what I try to point out is the way in which some of these are uh, fairly nutty. Uh, oh, there, there's the word nutty again <laughs> in the uh, in the uh, in the negative sense. Um, so maybe that's the sense I do need it do uh, uh, mean it in. Um, so if, if we go back to the airports again, the, the risk aversion, which causes uh, these, um, these searches uh, for all of us before we get on a plane, uh, even recently I was on a plane that only held uh, 10 people and they took us through the whole business, of course, um, as though there were uh, 400 people getting on the plane. Uh, one of the things that people, I don't know if they notice or not, but that often the number of people waiting to go through airport security uh, all gathered up in a crowd is larger than the number of people who will ever be on an airplane. So the phrase security theater has been used because none of those people have been checked at all. And um, the security apparatus has actually gathered up the target itself. The first gathering up happens at check-in, which are often, uh, we've all been in on those scenes, there are more people trying to check in. They have not been checked um, at all as they try to check in. Um, and there they are, this large, large crowd. Then the next big crowd is at the security gate itself, uh, and no one has been checked. Um, and the only thing that makes that plausible is this narrative um, that, um, again, a, a theatrical scenario that terrorists only blow up planes. Um, they don't do other things that would impose terror. And we know in places where there really is terror, um, or there has been, um, for example, Israel or Algeria, terrorists um, do not specialize narrowly. 
they figure out all kinds of settings in which they can do mayhem. Um, in the Irish case, again, uh, that um, w was also the instance, I mean, blowing up the Hilton Hotel. They didn't wait for a flight uh, to do terror. And um, the fact that uh, we have these, I mean, to call it gaping hole is to understate the case. But the example I gave of the airport security gate itself being the um, creating a potential target um, as part of the, of the very apparatus guarding against, um, against terror. I think that's uh, the giveaway. You, in the book, you speak of the, your phrase, I think, is the irrationality of risk judgment, which basically goes back to something we were saying earlier about uh, your bathtubs um, analogy, where the bathtub, you're more likely to fall over and injure yourself or perhaps even die as a result of your injuries than you are to um, come to grief in a plane. Similarly, uh, you're much more likely to die crossing the road than you are taking a flight, whether there's any terrorists on there or not. In fact, you're more likely to bring nuts up again, uh, or rather to, you know, well, figuratively and literally, you're more likely to choke on a peanut than you are um, to die as a result of a terroristic act. But I think a lot of people are not familiar with the raw numbers on risks. And actually, even if you put them before them, they tend to still have this, as you say, that the, the, the mental image, the nightmare image, um, almost outweighs any statistics that you can bring up. Uh, yes, I think that's true. And um, that's, that's us. Um, I think that is deeply human. Uh, and to do that, uh, but that um, often... Um, another kind of set of reasoning uh, comes into play. And so therefore you can have these differences that we've seen um, in the world. So when the, um, when, when the trains were blown up in Spain, um, then the, the uh, Spanish government responded by uh, pulling its troops out of the Iraq war. Uh, something like that happens in the United States and the response is to increase the, um, the, military, the militaristic response. Uh, there's all these different ways of doing it. Uh, um, I also see variations in uh, the way localities within the United States um, impose security, for example, at, at the airports. So in some airports, the, um, the, um, the TSA regime, uh, as guided by the employees, is quite militaristic. And I think that's exactly the right term to use. The whole thing is militaristic. That is, everyone has to go through exactly the same procedures. They're told to exactly do the same things. They do do the same things. As, as we, well, actually, we do know that the British and the Americans seem to be the most um, militaristic. When I um, am in some small towns in the United States, the uh, people at the uh, security gates are uh, almost apologetic. They're uh, a little bit charming. Uh, they might even be uh, a little bit helpful. Uh, to, uh, to they never touch your things in a helpful way. Um, they never touch your body in a helpful way. Uh, they never help you lift something off, for example, to put it on the the platform. But the, I, I, I'm getting back to the U.S. and Britain. Um, this the business of taking off your belt, taking off your shoes, uh, making sure your laptop is out of the bag, despite efforts to globally standardize that. They're not quite standardized, um, and the U.S. and Britain are the most extreme. And that displays, again, the way in which there is some sort of local give um, in the way in which the implementation occurs to uh, what is supposedly the same threat around the world. Yeah, so you mentioned there about uh, airport 
staff and helpfulness or lack thereof. And I had an interesting contrast in a couple of experiences I had. One was flying into New York and having what I'd call these days anyway, run of the mill security experience in terms of what they did. But it was very unpleasant. Aggressive people, eyes bugging out at me, snapping (laughs) at me, you know, despite the fact I was there, um, you know, as a tourist. And then later I flew um, to Tel Aviv in Israel and had even more so coming out than going in, the most stringent airport security beyond anything I have ever seen, you know, including like a debriefing, basically, when I was trying to get out of the place. However, I didn't mind. I cannot say that the young man and young woman who, uh, what would, any other circumstances would have amounted to an interrogation, they questioned me and they were so pleasant. The whole thing was done the best possible way. And it was just really stark contrast. Yeah. So one extreme about that now is to is to examine intelligence uh, in the sort of technical sense of the term of learning. Um, And uh, anyone who has helped a a child get dressed uh, to put their coat on, uh, that's when you find out if they, uh, for example, if they're sick, if they have a temperature, uh, you uh, find out if they took the cookie. Um, Maybe they even took a knife. Uh, you find you learn things through helping people. You don't necessarily learn pe- things from people about people by yelling at them. And so again, it's I think the American way of uh, of interrogation uh, is to uh, yell at people, and again to have this militaristic command structure. The Israeli system is one which is well worked out um, as, as a um, conversational set of sequences um, in which the theory is, is that if they keep asking you questions, if you're not telling the truth, your stories will uh, stop uh, agreeing with one another. Law enforcement uh, people around the world, some of them at least know this. Um, And so uh, one reaction is to just engage people in continuous conversation, as we sometimes do with our friends or colleagues, and then we find the inconsistency in the story, and then we know that something is amiss and something is wrong, Um, as opposed to the idea that you can scream at them, um, and uh, that will cause them uh, to, to obey. Or, in the extreme, we can torture them. Um, and if you torture them, you'll get at the truth uh, rather than if you chat with them. And the Israelis um, uh, have a more of a chatty situation. I should add, however, embedded in a context in which there is really not too much respect for civil liberties. And so something that like profiling people based on ethnicity uh, or religion, race or nation uh, is, is part of the routine um, as opposed to uh, the U.S., uh, where civil liberties are taken more seriously and uh, block that blatant uh, kind of, um, of, of profiling, although I think it goes on in the U.S. and probably in Britain as well. Now, in, in the West, uh, for the most part, we like to talk a lot about, you know, free market and what have you, but we don't really see, you know, have a free market in security in the sense that it's uh, maybe it's on private airports, but it would be difficult, for example, to set up an airport and say uh, one of our, you know, USPs is going to be uh, low level security, you know, basic security like we used to have in decades gone by. And then allow the market to decide whether people were willing to fly out of there 
knowing that um, the security was less stringent um, or whether people would avoid it because, oh, no, they don't do the, the, the body scans and the pat downs and they don't uh, tear people's luggage apart there. So I'm not going to go there. It's just interesting to see what a free market uh, security arena would look like. Well, you know, the whole security business helps us, I think, helps me to see the way markets uh, meet the uh, state, the way government meets up with markets, because uh, there are unusual circumstances. So the scenario you just laid out would be very difficult to implement um, because of the fact that unless I know that you're doing very major security operations in Britain, uh, that, uh, unless I know that, I can't be sure you're not letting an airplane into the sky that is filled with terrorists uh, or really only one or two who will guide that plane uh, toward a target in my own country. So therefore, the governments of, of the world have to get into the act um, rather than just the corporations in the world. And the, that mix of government and corporation uh, takes place in, a, in kind of a revealing way. Uh, I, for one, am quite uh, sympathetic to government. Um, but in the case of the security apparatus, what you see is the way the government interacts. So when I go to the airport and I check in, the people are reasonably nice to me. Uh, the friendly skies uh, of United Airlines, they're reasonably nice to me and often very nice, actually. And then when I get to the security gate, especially here in New York, then there's all this yelling and screaming and um, uh, banging and yelling and all of that. Um, and, and there I am with the government. Uh, then I get through it again to the opposite side. And it is like uh, leaving the uh, Russian zone in, in the old Berlin um, and getting into the uh, American or British or French zone. It's like, it's like freedom. Uh, and um, th that's the way it is. But uh, now I've entered the world of fast food franchises and, and airlines. Uh, the, the, the security apparatus imposes costs on us as we move through the, the system. It also imposes costs on the profit-making corporations because of the fact that, that um, uh, their, their flights are delayed, people uh, miss their flights, uh, it, it imposes a cost, and there have been tensions between the airlines um, and, and the governments, at least in the U.S., um, about this, because the, the airlines are not in favor of these complicated um, systems of control that, um, that cost them business. And in the U.S., after September 11th, when they imposed these, it had an effect on increasing the number of car trips that people take on short hauls um, along the East Coast in particular, and also increase the use of train travel, which as you probably know in the US is quite primitive. Uh, so the, uh, the airlines lose by this. And so it gives us an opportunity to see the interaction of the market and the state. And it, um, it, isn't, it isn't the clear dichotomy that uh, people are used to thinking of themselves on a sort of left-right, a socialist-capitalist continuum. It looks a bit different. Well, the the airlines' resistance to uh, increasing airport security was was a very big news item on this side of the Atlantic as well. Particularly the last big blow up, I think. Oh, pardon the phrase, 
the last big um, upsurge of that was uh, when they introduced the no liquids thing. And his name escapes me for the moment, but the the arrogant blowhard boss of um, Ryanair out of Ireland um, actually said something I agreed with at the time for once. And he was um, very vocal uh, against these increasing security measures. Richard Branson of Virgin was, as you'd expect, more eloquent on the subject. But yeah, not just to the airlines, of course, but across uh, all of the business and attempted profit-making world, uh, security is becoming extremely onerous. Yeah, you see, a lot of it comes from also the, the this idea we were talking before about we must do something. Uh, another aspect of we must do something is that it's the only thing that matters. So in this country, uh, one thing I've done is study the New York subway system and the security regimes that surround the New York subway system. And if somebody at a public hearing or whatever uh, or a politician says, well, it's a matter of security, then yes, we must do that. That, that ends discussion because uh, security rules. Um, there, there's no competing uh, notions if someone just raises uh, the issue of security. And um, that uh, betrays the fact that every organization, just like every one of us in our lives, has multiple goals. And it, it can't be that the only thing that matters is security. But once you get that line going, then you shut off discussion of other alternatives, um, as well as, like, for example, we have to make a profit in the case of a corporation, uh, like the fact that we've got to um, um, serve children uh, lunch um, in a school cafeteria, that there are many other goals simultaneous uh, to security. We, we, people are learning. Uh, people are just trying to have a nice day. People are trying to get from place to place. People want uh, to be um, uh, sent off by their loved ones at the airport. and They want to be near them. Uh, they want to be greeted when they get off the plane, um, especially if they um, have, have certain problems and know having an airline assistant help them is not the same thing as a family person helping them. All of these are um, um, important life goals that we all have. And to keep saying that, well, it's only security. And it, and we know how security is, is to be done. And helping, for example, is not part of it. So um, uh, it, it's, it's a matter of seeing security in context and that there are always other goals that you want to be pursuing. Yes, well, I think that point that you touched on there, that it's difficult to speak out uh, or take a contrary position on security matters is very important um, because, I mean, you've been able to, to you know, to speak, um, to give interviews, to write your book, and that's fine. You're free to do that. But often for people inside organizations, government corporations, whatever, it's it's seen as like, you know, it's almost like disloyal or that somehow insane to question this. Even though there might be a room, there might be a meeting taking place with however many people and they all agree uh, the opposite of what they're going to go ahead and implement. But no one can say anything. Right. And we see it at the micro level. Um, if, if you're, for example, um, as in New York, being greeted by police uh, uh, on the subway to inspect your if you get caught in one of their inspections, which happens occasionally in the New York police uh, the New York police do it in the subway or at the airport. If you speak up, you're looking for trouble. 
Uh, and um, at the airport, if, if, you, if, if you are an opponent, you risk being detained. You, of course, risk much more than being detained um, if you also fit some other aspect of the profile. And so it silences you. And in the same way, um, it, you, you spoke of, the, of, of Branson speaking out in Britain against the apparatus. There's been no Branson within the United States. So at the corporate level, the, uh, the, big, uh, um, the big bosses of the airlines don't speak out against it, even though it's in their interests. And for me personally, um, when I saw this book taking shape, I, I, it did dawn on me, wow, um, I, could, um, I could be in trouble for this. Um, I can report that um, the United States is not fascist uh, uh, with an asterisk uh, so far and in regard to me. And I've been able to come and go uh, without concern. But the fact that it dawned on me, um, I think, bespeaks a larger anxiety that people have about speaking out. Well, somewhat tangential to the the ability or otherwise to speak out is a kind of what I call the suspicion threshold, which is like what constitutes suspicious behavior. And I know you address this in the book. Uh, so, for example, at an airport um, running or raising your voice or, God forbid, doing both at the same time, it now constitutes a, a potential threat or perhaps in the eyes of some security people, an actual threat. Um, I was at an airport recently and a child's balloon popped. And a number of people almost jumped out of their, their skins. We really are afraid of our own shadow. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, life, I mean, the example of the pop balloon, uh, uh, I used to spend quite a bit of time uh, at airport security watching, which is a little bit tricky because you don't want to become a suspicious person yourself. But uh, using my um, cell phone video, I could take quite a bit of video and life is crazy. Real life has lots of things that go off track, like a balloon um, a bursting, uh, like a child's toy getting loose from the child. Children are great because they, they engage in quasi-random moves uh, and create a kind of randomness in the world, which drives parents crazy, of course, if you're trying to raise one. Uh, but it doesn't fit into things like a security apparatus at all uh, because the children are innocent. And so their toy will roll from one side of the security um, barrier to the other side of the security barrier. And they dart to get it uh, because they're not um, in, uh, impressed by either their parents or by the, uh, uh, the transportation security agency in the U.S. Um, and this sets off chaos um, a little a minor chaos, because they've got to deal with this unscripted behavior uh, that they don't know what to do with. And uh, the world is full of unscripted behavior. So people make jokes of all kinds. They make jokes about bombs. They say to each other, we all do all the time. Someone says, I'm going to eat your donut. You say, I'll kill you. Well, is that a threat? Um, and and well, yes, at the security gate, it might well be. And so this, um, uh, okay, use the term again, militaristic uh, apparatus, which is oriented toward breaking people down into specific moves um, and imposing rules about how each move should be made, uh, runs and speak, um, runs against um, the nature of life. So it really is a kind of a system in which 
you've imposed, it's really an anti-life system. Uh, life in the sense of the randomness, chaos, um, mirth, uh, joking, um, innuendo making, all of this is um, impermissible um, against uh, the, uh, the effort to impose these tight structures of uh, bureaucratic uh, security. One of the things that concerns me most going forward, uh, looking at the bigger picture of this, and this is related to what I was saying a moment ago about um, people, they might want to run or raise their voice or maybe do both in the airport or somewhere similar, but they're, 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 very, they're sort of self-policing because they're concerned about drawing attention to themselves, is that we do seem to be breeding a sort of reflexive obedience um, in people uh, that's that could really is I think, potentially quite dangerous. Uh, I'm not trying to sound a conspiratorial note here, but it's sort of the net effect of this. Not that anyone's trying to achieve this, but even more so than usual, we're waiting around to be ordered in one direction and pointed over there and corralled and controlled. Well, that again is it's interesting because it's it's sort of the the politics in the small p of uh, how this all uh, how this works. Uh, uh, I take a very dim view of security, um, and uh, but I notice some people, again, especially at the airports, uh, they uh, are are happy to participate. I roll my eyes at the person next to me going through the line. They don't roll their eyes back. Sometimes they do, but sometimes they um, uh, say they're they're glad to do their part, and. Uh, I, I think again, that's revealing that it's it's almost like a um, an experiment that security sets up. How is it that people are going to react, and they react differently? Some people uh, are are very pleased to obey and eager to show their obedience, and some people um, roll their eyes um, but are quiet. I would say that's my um, stance. Um, uh, but other and other people are openly rebellious. Um, and they risk getting in trouble. Now, there's a number of other areas that you touch upon uh, in the book, sort of with their own discrete chapters, uh, one of which is related directly to uh, 9-11, which we were speaking about earlier. And you have a chapter on uh, basically the rebuilding efforts at Ground Zero uh, in New York and what should have been perhaps an opportunity for some you know, reflection, thoughtfulness, maybe even some humility uh, has instead turned it into uh, being about hubris, um, being about macho, and and about winning ultimately. Yes. So th these very things we've been talking about, the response uh, with aggressiveness, uh, as opposed to uh, with humility or thoughtfulness, I think plays out in in buildings and the reconstruction of the World Trade Center site. Um, displays hubris in construction and also fear and anxiety and what is done with that fear and anxiety. So as most uh, people probably know, after September 11th, there were uh, large forums about what should be done with the site and uh, what do we do in concrete steel or in plant materials? What do we do at that place? And some people said there should be a, me a meadow a uh, reflective pool, a uh, recreational facilities. Um, I, I wrote into the New York Times that the, the best uh, antidote to terror um, is charm and wit. 
none of those uh, played out. And instead, there came to be the idea that we needed to do something bold that would show that the United States is not afraid um, and that we can restore the grandeur of the New York skyline. Now, those buildings were never uh, much liked by the architectural critics uh, or I don't think by very many other people, the, uh, the original towers. So it was an opportunity, therefore, to create something uh, equally big, at least, and, um, uh, but even better in terms of grandeur. And so the great architects of the world uh, all participated in a, a competition as to whose building would win. And uh, uh, your Lord Norman Foster of Britain was one of the was one of the contenders, as as well as again the great star architects of the world um, all participated, and one was chosen. Uh, there was a, a a jury, a selection jury, that uh, chose one particular firm. Uh, that was actually a consortia itself of important architectural firms of of the world. And uh, the governor of New York uh, ruled against them. Uh, it, there were many permutations of the building that then got um, implemented. And the final version, in the final case, the, the project is not being done by one of the star architects of the world at all, but being done by the very architect who had been hired before the attacks to do the remodel on the ground floor, floor plaza and the retail um, on the lower levels. He was a, is a uh, competent uh, but unimaginative architect, uh, considered a kind of nuts and bolts architect. And uh, that who is, that's who designed the building. But the real security part of the building is that the bottom 20 stories of the building will be nothing but concrete. That is the space that would ordinarily be approximately 20 stories of office space, a glass enclosed, um, will instead be nothing but dead concrete. And that's because the um, police at the last minute uh, overruled the architect and the other officials who were involved because they said, well, no, the, the site would be now um, accessible to a truck bomber who could do damage if the bottom 20 stories were the typical glass and steel um, for retail and office. So in fact, the bottom 20 stories are absolutely nothing. The top more than the equivalent of 20 stories because they are such a uh, beckoning target. Uh, this will be the tallest building. Um, this will be the tallest structure. I correct myself in North America. They're calling themselves the tallest building. It's not. It's the tallest structure because there will be a, um, a spire atop the building, which is double the height of the Empire State's spire. And only by having this enormous spire does the building reach the height where they can say it is the highest building in North America and that indeed it is 1776, 1,700 and 76 feet tall to commemorate America and its declaration of independence uh, from Great Britain. And so it's, it's got its patriotism uh, built into the fabric of the building um, and it's got its fear built into the fabric of the building. Um, it's got its um, uh, militarism 
built into the fabric of the building. And so it really is, uh, in a way, a new kind of architecture, not completely new because uh, fortresses, which um, our cities were built, many of them originally as fortresses in Europe, uh, the, um, the fortress architecture has happened before. Uh, but the whole thrust of modern architecture, of glass and steel and transparency, uh, was against the idea of fortress. And so now we're really back in the business of fortress. And it's, I think, another uh, consequence of the security regime. Speaking as a former would-be architect, I have to say the last thing you needed on that site was another Eye of Sauron, but it appears to be roughly what you've got because I've seen the pictures and it is truly horrible. Um, You also have in the book a section on natural disasters and specifically you drill down into the events before, during and after Hurricane Katrina. Um, I don't know if there's any unique aspects of that that you'd perhaps like to touch on. Well, it's my effort. Uh, I did research in New Orleans uh, in the aftermath of Katrina, trying to figure out uh, for myself how that occurred. And my research there involved interviews with uh, many dozens of experts from from hydrology and geology and um, urban planning and many other fields. And what one learns is that the effort to control the water, uh, which has been going on for well over 100 years in the Gulf of Mexico area and particularly in New Orleans, the, those efforts are, are to control, uh, are incriminated in what, in what went wrong. And there's one particular uh, canal that was built, arguably as a flood control canal, but also as a commercial canal as a way of getting um, of, of getting ships um, to the uh, Mississippi River and the Gulf of Mexico in a more efficient and cost-effective way for the um, entrepreneurs involved in shipping, uh, th- that is uh, heavily uh, a force. And so the this canal, which locally is called Mr. Go, uh, is locally uh, called Hurricane Highway because in the effort to build a way to get the ships to go out of the city, the heart of the city, um, and into the Gulf, to keep the uh, uh, floodwaters that are normal to New New Orleans and to that region out of the city, they created this vertically walled channel through which when the weather shifts, you have the mechanism through which a hurricane comes into the city. And that storm surge was key to the destruction of the city. So in this completely different um, genre, this completely different setting than the airports or 9-11 or uh, the New York subways, uh, you have another mechanism in which the need to to do something um, and to secure the place against nature was the very vehicle uh, that caused the whole place to be done in. Uh, and we have had a replay of that in a way with Hurricane Sandy here in the northeast of the United States, in which we learned that so many of the uh, artifice um, mechanisms that were built uh, to, including the very houses that people were living in, uh, that were built along the water, it was human-made um, uh, artificial elements that created that created the danger. 
And you as uh, someone who had been involved in architect, I'm sure, know this because now increasingly people are saying, and the, the lesson is taking hold now in New York, that what creates um, catastrophe um, is human beings. There are, not, there are no natural disasters. There are only human beings who uh, create disaster for themselves by the way they manipulate the, the physical environment. And that's what happened in New Orleans. And to a strong degree, that's what's happened in the Northeast here. And of course, uh, Katrina and that, the aftermath of that, and well, actually the lead up to it as well, was perhaps the one of the ultimate examples of what we touched upon earlier. That is to say, uh, corruption and profiteering, uh, political corruption and you know uh, business corruption entering into the arena of security. In fact, just recently in the news headlines, it was reported, uh, you may know more about this than me, uh, officials, not, not sure it was the mayor, but certainly senior officials in New Orleans uh, in the news again with regards to corruption. Uh, yes, it, and indeed it is the mayor. It's not just the mayor. Uh, Louisiana, New Orleans has a long tradition of heavy corruption and um, the whole security apparatus just in effect got grafted onto that uh, onto that apparatus. That goes on all over the world, of course, as the uh, United States um, and other countries, uh, uh, go, the great nations of Europe, as they used to be called, uh, runs through these various other countries, uh, thinking that we can just uh, provide military support uh, for our people and uh, we'll have control over what happens with the, the money, uh, those arms and those troops uh, that we foster, and they become, in effect, wild to our goals and have all sorts of uh, consequences. In New Orleans, to get back to what went on in Katrina, one of the reasons why there was so much uh, death in, in, in Katrina and so in, in, incompetently handled uh, was, again, the militarism. So if you um, uh, create a situation in which the first responders that come in from the outside are the military, uh, then you won't help people live. And that is what happened, by the way. There was great fear of looting and even of mass murder uh, that supposedly was going on among the people of New Orleans, among the victims themselves. And so uh, the, uh, the great uh, response of the US government was troops on the ground uh, and to beef up control uh, at a time when people needed diapers and medicine, food and water. Uh, and that um, accelerated the, uh, the death rate. Also, uh, the uh, services had been much uh, weakened uh, by the fact that the National Guard, for example, had been sent to Iraq and that the units that would have otherwise been available were less available that after 9-11, the aid to the uh, government, local governments for security, went to things like flak vests um, and uh, bomb detection um, and helicopters uh, and uh, remote sensing mechanisms, um, as opposed to, for example, flat-bottomed um, safety boats that could have uh, hauled people out, which the local people had actually requested. So again, the, there's an intersection between the two kinds of security that you're trying to do. The security against terror, um, terror in the Middle East, um, but also um, 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 crime 
uh, that is supposedly going on. And it turns out to have been an utter fiction that people were killing each other. For example, in the Superdome, some people may remember the Superdome, which became enormously crowded um, and difficult, but it was orderly right all the way through. Um, and so people couldn't get aid because the first forms of aid uh, were military aid, which were, was no aid at all um, and really didn't um, really didn't do any help. Well, Harvey, as we bring things to a close uh, for today, uh, I'd just like to say, I mean, if you told me 20 years ago that uh, we'd be doing being forced to do the sort of things we're forced to do now in airports, I'd have said, no, no, people won't buy that. Uh, to coin a phrase, that's not going to fly. Uh, people just won't accept that level of intrusive security. Uh, but here we are. And also that as each new security measure is implemented, um, there never seemed to be any getting rolled back to sort of balance it out, even when the so-called need for it is debunked. It's kind of just kept in place. I mean, the liquid bomb thing has been pretty much comprehensively debunked in terms of what was actually doable in the air. But we're still all living with it. And it's part of that can't question the thing, I guess. You know, if you roll something back, then what are you admitting? You know, what are you giving away? And just what your thoughts on that are and how you feel about, you know, the future where things are going with regard to security. Yes. Well, first of all, some things were simple to do. And uh, for relaxing people, if for no other reason, they were good to do. So locking the uh, cabin of the uh, pilot away from the cabin of the passengers uh, accomplishes most of what there is to be accomplished. Um, if anything, much at all. Um, and that's a, a, that's a nice thing to do because it interferes minimally in anyone's life. The pilot, if the pilot has to pee, he's got a problem. Uh, but other than that one individual with that one problem, uh, and it can be overcome, it, there is very little intervention in people's lives. And uh, compared to this mass, mass, mess, uh, that's created in the routines of all of our beings by these other kinds of, uh, of measures. The other thing to keep in mind is that the, the, the kinds of events in which people were stopped from doing terror, in the airplanes, for example, uh, but also in the New York subways, and we didn't talk much about that, but there are many instances, um, is people helping each other. And so it's other passengers um, or the uh, flight attendants who have stopped crazy people on airplanes from blowing up the plane. There have only been a handful of such instances, uh, but none of those people were stopped really by the security apparatus, the official security apparatus. It was stopped by ordinary passengers uh, or by flight attendants who were trying to serve lunch, and they took care of that problem. It's people helping people. In terms of reversing any of the other stuff, uh, once there's an inertia to all of this and the problems of silence and that you could be a traitor, uh, uh, lack patriotism uh, or be irresponsible. All of that keeps everything on track. However, a ray of light uh, in the U.S. in the last few days, uh, the government has announced a retreat on the, what are, we call full body scans. I don't know if you have them yet in Britain, the machines where uh, that renders your body transparent. Um, you, you, it's not just a metal detector. You, you, they're horrible, actually, because you have to raise your arms above your head um, and uh, a photo is taken that is really quite revealing of your private parts. 
And all of this is in response to the so-called underwear bomber, because we saw that um, uh, people could put things um, in their underwear. Uh, of course, people can also put things up their, up their anal canals, and people have done that, uh, but we have no way of dealing with that. Anyway, the, um, these full body scans are going to be taken away because the contractor has not been able to devise a technology that um, secures w what is regarded as the proper privacy of members of the flying public. And so we actually have a reversal. And that's one of the few reversals. There have been a few others uh, that have taken place. And so there's a ray of hope for you. Well, that is news, actually. I wasn't aware of that. So I shall be, uh, look into that for sure, find out what's going on. But that, that's very hopeful. Um, Harvey, your book, once again, for listeners against security, how we go wrong at airports, subways and other sites of ambiguous danger. Uh, that's available pretty much everywhere. Um, is there anything else you'd like to share about your work where people can find out about it? Do you have a website, for example? Uh, no, I don't. I, um, but they can uh, find out about it by going to that, uh, uh, going to that book on, um, on, on the web. Uh, it'll be easy to find. And uh, it tells about the contents of the book. Wonderful. Well, Harvey, thank you very much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Thank you. Well, that's it for another week. As always, thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please check out the website. That's LegalizeFreedom.com. Legalize-Freedom.com. You can spell Legalize with an S or a Z. There you'll find an archive of programs on many equally fascinating topics. Until next time, I'm Greg Moffat, and you've been listening to LegalizeFreedom.com. <laughs>